as far as I'm concerned, unless everybody in the four corners of the earth knows that Julius Jones exists and knows that this has been a grave injustice, our work is still not done. You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. On today's episode, I'm joined by my co-host, Malika Cox. She is passionate about criminal justice reform, restorative justice, and policy changes that impact marginalized communities. Malika is the pastor of spiritual formation, justice, and community life at The Table in Oklahoma City. Malika speaks and teaches on anti-bias, diversity and inclusion, race and reconciliation, and transitional and restorative justice practices. And we're so excited that Malika is going to be a speaker at the Virtual Zero Mental Health Symposium coming up September 30th through October 2nd. This year's theme is Healing from Historical Trauma, and you can register today at zerosymposium.org. So today, Malika is going to interview her friend, C.C. Jones Davis, a worship leader, speaker, writer, and social advocate. C.C. was awarded the 2019 Phil Wall Abolitionist of the Year Award by the Oklahoma Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty for her criminal justice advocacy and reform work. She currently serves as the teaching pastor at the table in Oklahoma City. Cece isn't just Malika's good friend and co-minister. She's also, as Malika likes to say, one of her favorite people on the planet. And I see why. This is one of my favorite interviews yet on the download. Malika and Cece talk about Cece's dedication to the Justice for Julius Jones campaign. You can get involved with the Justice for Julius Jones campaign at justiceforjuliusjones.com. And I'm about to read you some verbiage that is taken directly from that website. Julius Jones is on death row in Oklahoma, in a case riddled with odious racial discrimination, including a police officer's use of a racial slur during Mr. Jones' arrest, and the state's removal of all prospective black jurors except one. Evidence shows that a juror used the N-word before jury deliberations at the sentencing phase. The U.S. Supreme Court has made unequivocally clear that our criminal justice system cannot tolerate such blatant examples of racial prejudice on the part of even a single juror. In this way, and many others, Mr. Jones's rights under the state and federal constitutions have been violated, and his conviction and death sentence should be overturned. All right, with all that being said, let's get this conversation started. The Mental Health Download starts now. Cece, I guess I want to start with, you are a minister, and we've actually done ministry together before. I want to know, and I think people would like to know, how uh, you got involved kind of in getting out of the four walls of the church and really coming into the places that I think Jesus would come into, where people are hurting and broken, where there's injustice, and, and you kind of done, you, you've led this journey into really places of where people are marginalized. And will you just tell us a little bit about your story and all this? Oh, for sure. So you mentioned that I went to divinity school. Before that, I I went to Howard University in Washington, D.C., which some people may know as a historically Black college. And so going to a historically Black college really helped me to understand so much more of my own story and so much more of the story of marginalized people throughout the African diaspora and beyond, and really helped craft in me language for 
the the issues that marginalized communities face on a regular basis in a way that I had never had never understood or known it. I come from a small town, a rural town in Virginia, where you know I didn't visibly see homelessness. I did not visibly see the impact of drug addiction. I did not visibly see the impact of you know, so many horrible social issues coming from places like that. You just, you know, they they happen, they go on, You they, they're just not as visible. But in a metropolitan area like D.C., you know, you see, you not only learn about these things on campus, but you see these issues all around you. And so I would say that going to a historically Black college really helped me academically understand the issues, but also living in a in a, in a city where so many of these issues were visible really helped me to impartationally, you know, take in the issues and understand them on a different level. Uh, and then I went to Yale Divinity School, and uh, it was really at Yale that I, I probably understood more most fully that my faith was not about what church I worship in, you know, or what denomination. But I really began to understand my faith in terms of the implications of the gospel, well, the impl- the social implications of the gospel, right? That the gospel is not just, just for me and mine and very personal, but also the gospel came to to save a really, really broken world. And that, you know... That along with where I worship and how I worship and how I pray and how I sing and all of that, that those things are not as important as how I love my neighbor and what my witness, what my witness bears out in the world. And so, you know, in terms of that's really how I understood that my faith is not, it's not about the four walls of the church, even though we love our institutions and we love our buildings. Faith is so much more about the witness that I have in the world as my life bear witness to the name of Christ. And so I've been trying to live that out as best as I can through my advocacy work. Can you share a little bit about Christian ethics. I think that's one of the things that I've heard you talk about before is that there's sometimes a disconnect (laughs) between having a very church place like Oklahoma and then seeing those ethics lived out kind of more macro in the world. Mm -hmm. It's, It's interesting. You know, it's really, really interesting because what I have learned since I've been I've been in Oklahoma and I've been here about five years now what I've learned is that we are more traditional than we are faithful in a lot of ways and that we are sometimes more, more traditional than we are theologically grounded. And all the ways that I love Oklahoma and all the ways that I love the vibrancy of the faith community in Oklahoma, how, you know, Oklahoma is a place where you can be unashamed and, you know, not shy in any way, shape or form about being a believer in Jesus Christ. And I really love that because there's so many places, not just in the country, but obviously throughout the world where, you know, you, you can't you can't make those kinds of claims so boldly. At the same time, I do think that we that we live within a very uh, fragile theological framework mm-hmm. in a lot of ways that we do not grapple with. We simplify things that are 
complex and we kind of slap the name of Jesus on, you know, things and issues without being willing to delve in and become peace builders in the midst of chaos. And so, you know, I think that we have some ways to go and how we reconcile and not all faith communities, obviously. I'm just, you know, talking about quite a few of them. We do have quite a ways to go in Oklahoma, I think, in terms of reconciling our Jesus with that, with, with the justice that he commands, mm-hmm. the justice that he lives out. I think we've got a ways to go in that. It's been interesting, you know, to say the least. And I am hoping that Oklahoma faith folks and faith people across the United States and me, myself, take a lot more seriously the work that the gospel requires of us to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God and to kind of get our heads out of the sand on issues. Well, you talked to us about the Justice for Julius campaign, Julius's case, the cause. I I know you've taken this very seriously. You've seen an injustice and you've stepped up to it. So I just want to open up some time for you to really talk and share about this issue that you're extremely passionate about. So two years ago, ABC showed a docu-series called The Last Defense, and it focused on the criminal justice system in the United States and the, the cases that we, the public, need to be the most concerned about and have an awareness about. And Julius Jones' story was a part of that. And Julius, it was a 19-year-old man who in 1999 was tried and convicted and sentenced to death for the murder of a a white business owner out of Edmond, Oklahoma. And the last offense really highlighted the issues uh, regarding Julius's situation and why people should care and why this was not in any way, shape or form a fair trial, how racism infected his trial and probably his sentencing and how Julius Jones does not even did not even fit the description of the shooter. For the last couple of years, as somebody living in Oklahoma City where this happened 20 years ago, I felt a, a really deep sense of call to, to provide some advocacy, support, and effort to his family and to him and to, you know, help raise awareness about about this, you know, to faith leaders and legislators and community leaders and everyday people. And and so one of the things that that kind of helped was to form a coalition called the Julius Jones Coalition. And it's made up of all kind of people from all kind of backgrounds. And faithfully, for the last two years, our whole work has been, what are we going to do about Julius Jones? And we have really try to leave no stone unturned, not just in Oklahoma, but as far reaching as we could possibly get. And it's been incredible to tell you the truth. Just last night, 2020, aired an update on Julius Jones, a two hour update. And, you know, it has not, as anybody can imagine, when you challenge systems, Mm -hmm. when you challenge people in authority, when you challenge structures that have deep, deep roots and are and have money and are old. You know, it is a definite David and Goliath situation. And so this has been definitely the hardest work I have ever engaged in. But I am grateful that 
I have not engaged in it alone, that Julius has an amazing family who've been walking with him for 20 years. Other folks on a national level have leaned into this, the producer of Just Mercy, uh, Scott Butnick, uh, his organization represent justice, Kim Kardashian, Jason Flom, Russell Westbrook, Blake Griffin, all kind of people are using their influence as bridges for this young man. And my hope is that the governor and the partner and parole board will understand that at this point, we don't need the law. We need justice. The law has has mangled this man's life up. The law has kept him in, in solitary confinement for 23 hours out of the day. The law has almost executed 10 other people wrongfully in the state of Oklahoma. The law has required that the state exonerate at least at least 28 other people out of prison after giving up after after they've served 30 years and 20 years and 17 years for crimes that they never committed in the first place so so we know that the law is not perfect we know that the law gets it wrong we know that the law has not always been on the side particularly of poor people particularly on african american on the side of african american men so what we need the governor and the pardon parole board to do is not any more law. We need justice. That's so good, Cece. I mean, I think people forget that um, slavery was the law. Segregation yeah. was the law. So I think, you know, getting this concepts between justice and the law and working towards what we can do for justice. Help anybody listening who is hearing maybe about Julius for the first time, or maybe they've seen a Kim Kardashian tweet, or maybe watch the 2020 or the Viola Davis reduction, and just have been in their, you know, heart just knew that this was wrong. What what can they do? How can they how can they advocate CC? Yeah. So we're asking people to visit the website justiceforjulius.com and we're asking people to sign the petition, the change.org petition there that at this point has about six million signatures. We would love people for people to send letters to the governor and to the pardon and parole board members on Julius's behalf. We would love for people to watch The Last Defense, which is on the website, justiceforjulius.com. But then we have, you know, this this 2020 special that again just came out. And if people missed it, you know, you can f- probably find it on demand. But, you know, this is something that we can't afford to ignore anymore you know? Mm-hmm. And so people can help those ways. You can join the Julius Jones Coalition by searching us on Facebook and requesting to join and just kind of keep up with everything that is going on. But we also need people to be ambassadors on social media mm-hmm. and help us to to spread the word. Because as far as I'm concerned, unless everybody in the four corners of the earth knows that Julius Jones exists and knows that this has been a grave injustice, our work is still not done. And so mm-hmm. We need everybody to know about him. So we need everybody to share and talk about his story. That's so good. I think the thought of any innocent person being executed or any innocent person on death row is just so disturbing and that it is an issue of just getting the word out there. So thank you so much for sharing that. I know we have a few minutes left. And if there's anything else with Julius Jones, please, please feel free to share CC. Mm-hmm. 
When it comes to Oklahoma justice, you and I have had conversations about reconciling our past in Oklahoma, considering some of the things Oklahoma has some of the most well-known, really injustices in the country when it comes to like the ethnic cleansing of Black Wall Street or the Trail of Tears or even the Oklahoma City bombing done by an anti-government, anti-white, I mean, a white supremacist, anti-government person, Timothy McVeigh. Talk to us. How can we reconcile our past? We seem to not be able to move forward as much as people would like to. So I want to get your thoughts on how we actually deal and reconcile as an ambassador of reconciliation. We want to move to grace when we haven't dealt with truth. Mm. God is a God of truth and grace. We are where we are because we have not dealt with the truth in America. We're where we are because, you know, in Oklahoma, there was uh, there were towns that had ordinances and signs up that said after a certain hour, all black people, people of color, natives had to be out of town or else. And over the years, we thought that it would, the only thing that needed to be done was to take those signs down. When in actuality, you can take a sign down and just because you take a sign down doesn't mean that the sentiment has changed. And so what is required is for us to take responsibility and truth tell. So you can't just take a sign down and say, oh, well, by law, this is not a sundown town anymore. So I hope you guys are happy. No, no, no. If you understood the damage that those kinds of laws and those kinds of motivations have had on human beings' lives. If you could understand what it would mean for my grandfather and his father to literally be in fear of their lives after a certain time on a clock, if they haven't gotten out in time. If you, don't, if you can't understand the trauma that comes along with those kinds of injustices, the the brokenheartedness, the degradation, the humiliation. If you can't, if you can't understand that, then you can't understand why we are where we are. We're where we are because the sentiments in America around white supremacy and racism is still very much alive. And it's not alive in the same ways that it was, for example, for my grandparents. You know, my grandfather, you know, was a stoic man who understood that if that it was not a good thing if he held eye contact with a white man too long. So if we do not deal with the truth of what has happened in this country, then we can't deal with the grace and we can't get to reconciliation. If we cannot honor the fact that people's lives, black lives matter, whether you believe in the organization or not, can you believe in the statement, do black lives matter? And if they matter, can we please do something and speak as a single voice around police brutality? If those things don't hit folks in the heart and we can't come together collectively to say, yeah, this is wrong, then the, the reconciliation can't really be a real thing. And, 
you know, in terms of reconciliation, I, Malika, you know this, I take issue with the word itself because to reconcile that word R-E means to return to something that was. And in the United States of America, there has been no racial conciliation. There has been no place where African-Americans and or descendants of African people and Native people and white people have been together. We haven't been equal. We haven't been the same. We haven't been treated fairly. We haven't had a peaceful relationship. And so when we're talking about reconciliation as a biblical term, I understand it to be referring to the relationship between God and Adam and Eve, where there was a, a strong relationship. There was an intimacy. There was a, there was something real between them and God before, before what happened happened, right? And we do not have that. And so even our language is so, so important. R- racial reconciliation. What are we going back to? We're not going back mm-hmm. to anything good. So what that means is that we've got to more see our work as as building blocks, right? As starting points, something that our children can continue to build upon. But that's why I take issue with the word itself, reconciliation, because I don't know that that is the truest language that we can use. And we need to get down to as best truth as we can. I really think the idea of reconciling something where there was a asymmetrical power dynamic doesn't work. I'm with you on the word conciliation. But you had talked to me once about an idea that you had, and I think it's so powerful, on something simple we could just do about sundown towns. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we've got to acknowledge that they existed, and I think we've got to have what I know you're a real advocate for, Malika, which is Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Mm-hmm. I think, again, I don't think that you can just take down a sign, mm-hmm. you know. And the way, you know, the way I think about this, Those kinds of dynamics don't work in a marriage. So why would that work between people groups? Why why could could one one person or one group be treated so harshly, so unfairly, so unjustly? And then the other person just comes and says, oh, well, I think that's enough and take down the sign and not address it and not say I'm sorry, not take responsibility, not say that was horrible. And not try to repair it. Right. What kind of trust can be built on that? No trust at all. Whether you're married, whether you have a sister, whether you, you know, are having dynamics between a mother and a, and a daughter, and whether or not it's a dynamic between people groups who have a historical, broken, broken relationship. Right. right. So, so we need the, the moments that look people in the eye and say, this was horrible. Mm-hmm. This should have, should have never happened. It was evil. It was white supremacist. It was damaging to your people. It was degrading. It was humiliating. And we are sorry. I don't know why that's hard, but you cannot build trust until people understand what has happened. And there is a clear responsibility taken out. People will say, but I wasn't born back then. I wasn't, I wasn't this and I wasn't that. Well, listen, you probably know some folks who were born back then. I definitely knew some folks who were impacted negatively by sundown laws. 
And sometimes in order to move forward, we've got to be willing to stand in the gap. You know, we've got to be willing to stand in, in proxy for our forefathers who created the damage, but whose damage continues to perpetuate on other people. We've got to be willing to do that. It's so good. I mean, it hasn't been that long. My father just passed away a few, uh, about a month ago, and he actually went to college one semester in one of these sundown towns and only lasted a semester. And it, he, he had racial trauma his whole life. Yeah. And the idea that, like you said, individually or in a marriage, what if the therapist said, get over it, move on? Why would a society operate any different? We have to deal with our traumas and our past. Yeah, we do. That's so good. Cece, we are kind of winding down here. I really want to be sure that everyone gets a chance to, to follow you and, and get a part of this really global campaign to, to ensure that Julius gets out mm-hmm. of um, off death row, his sentence commuted. So please tell us more how I know there's the justice for Julius, but can they follow you? I know writing letters of the governor's important. Will you just share anything else about this case that we need to know? Yeah, I, I think, you know, the, the bottom line is that a horrendous crime took place in 1999. Mm-hmm. A good man's life was lost. And there is no question about that. And his family has suffered immensely. The wrong man has been held accountable for that. And his life hangs in the balance. And there would be no justice for anybody if Julius Jones, God forbid, was executed in the state of Oklahoma for a crime he did not commit. That's the bottom line that I want people to take away. That, you know, there's there's somebody's life. And I, you know, I, I'm so passionate about this because it's not far reaching for me. This could be my my brother, this could be my cousin, this could be an uncle of mine. This is not this is not far removed from me in any way. And it's not far removed from a lot of us. Mm-hmm. We're not invincible. You know, I just want people to do what they can, you know, and I think it's really important in things like this that we take some ownership, take a little piece of it and do your part, whether that's on social media, whether that's donating to the campaign whether that's, you know, calling the governor, emailing the governor, writing letters to the pardon parole board, whatever that is, take a piece of this and own it. Because I think it's this kind of stuff. We want to be on the right historical, right side of the historical record. And we want to be on the right, we want to be on the right side of the record in heaven as well. Because this, this is the work that has eternal value, you know. What we do to the least of these, Jesus says, we've done unto him. And so, God, let it be the least who is in the dark, darkest corner of our criminal justice system that we have fought for our best as if it was Christ Jesus himself. It's not, but, but we could work as if it is. Amen. You are... Uh, definitely one of my heroes. Oh my God. I you think are <laughs> you are my, we are soul sisters. <laughs> yes, we are. And uh, I, I definitely um with you, spirit and soul. And um hope that everybody listening here will, will get on that website and get out a letter to the governor and the part of parole board, watch the 2020, listen to uh, and watch The Last Defense, because this is an example of our criminal justice system. Innocent people 
on death row. And this man, uh, I have looked in the eyes of his mama, Mama Jones, and she has said she was with Julius at the time of this murder. And I believe her. She's one of the most noble, upright, good people I've ever met. So mm-hmm. yeah, thank you so much. And thank you to Matt for having us. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Thanks oh my so gosh. much. And thank Such you an honor. Again. Hey, before we wrap up, so Malik is going to be speaking at the Zero Mental Health Symposium, and our theme is healing from historical trauma. And so I'm curious, what does healing from historical trauma mean to you? And what do you think we as a culture need to do to continue that healing? Mm. Oh, Lord, that's a good question. I think it's very important that we know history that we commemorate history, that history lives within our very souls so that we try with that information to be better and more evolved and more humane and more loving and more peaceful. I think it's very important for us to understand history as best as we can. I'm not just talking about, you know, our family history. I'm not just talking about the history in our state. I'm not just talking about the United States history. And there's a lot of history. Don't get me wrong, folks. So, you know, I, I know it's, it's, it's big, but I think it's really important that we learn and know as much of the human story as we can so that we can know what we don't want to ever be again. But I also think that it's important that we balance our remembrance out with acts and practices of joy. The bottom line is that we're not going to get it all right. The bottom line is that horrific things have happened to people groups for no good reason. There will never be a good reason. They will will never be able to find a good enough reason why slavery existed or why the Holocaust happened or anything else. And so we have to we have to find joy in the midst of the world that we live in. We have to play with our kids. We have to write. We have to laugh. We have to use acts of joy. We have to work out. We have to use acts of joy as resistance against the darkness that does persist. I would say that healing from trauma would involve balancing memory and joy. 